this is James Schofield, and you're listening to Behind the Bottom Line. This is episode 8 of season 7, and today's story is set in a world that's always interested me, the world of the motivational speaker. Have you ever wondered about these people? They turn up at a conference, talk entertainingly or inspiringly or movingly for about 30 minutes, and walk away thousands of euros in their pocket. But after you listen to one of those speeches, however much you might have enjoyed it at the time, do you ever think you've really learned something special that makes it all worthwhile? Well, follow me behind the scenes to meet the people behind the speakers and find out what motivates them. And now, just sit back and relax and listen to Catchphrase. And remember what my old sheepdog Billy taught me. Who dares wins. There was an explosion of lights, rock music blasted from the speakers, and Jack Paget marched to the front of the stage. He stood smiling, waving left and right, pointing to somebody in the audience, and... Cut! The music stopped, and Jack looked across the empty auditorium to the projection box, where Tony King was watching the rehearsal. What's wrong, Tony? he asked, shading his eyes from the spotlights. How many times have we told you, Jack, point and give a thumbs up? A thumbs up? What's the problem? Jack frowned. But who am I giving it to? Tony exploded. For Christ's sake, he screamed. BB, do your bloody job. I went on stage with a bottle of water, my heart thumping as it always did when near Jack. As he drank, I explained that the finger point and thumbs up gesture was not meant for anyone specific. Each member of the audience wants the illusion they're your friend, Jack. It makes them feel loved. Ah, he said sadly. So I'm faking love now? He shook his head, and I found myself feeling a little bit more guilty. At that time, I worked for Tony King. He ran an agency called King Speech, which provided top speakers for company conferences. Design thinking, environmentalism, digitalization. As long as the show was entertaining, companies were happy to pay. But Jack was different to Tony's other speakers. They were mostly ex-salesmen. But Jack was originally a sheep farmer that Tony had met by chance on a farm in New Zealand. He was likeable, but more importantly, charismatic. Not because he was brilliant, but because he could take funny farming anecdotes and connect them with the topics that companies wanted to hear about. Audiences loved him. When he joined, Tony asked me to look after him, even though I was about to leave the agency. I'd had enough of the phony catchphrases our speakers all used, and I wanted to write a novel. It's all bullshit, Tony, I'd said. Who dares wins? When life gives you a lemon, 
turn it into lemonade. I'm sick of it. Yes, but BB, this guy's special. Coach him for six months and I'll give you enough money to write your novel without living off packet soup. But two years later, I was still there. You see, I fell in love with Jack. But although he was always nice to me, he never seemed interested in anything more. So I stayed and gradually turned him from a sheep farmer into a corporate motivational guru. He earned good money, but I saw, because I watched him closely, that every cliched catchphrase or cheap presenter's trick that I taught him added a grey hair to his head. This made me feel guilty, but the only alternative was to get him to go back to his sheep. I couldn't do that. That evening, he was talking about corporate environmentalism for an audience of car salesmen. He didn't like the speech I'd written for him, and as we went through it after lunch, he was sulky. It's all greenwashing, he said. It has a great title, I said, trying to be patient. Global warming isn't cool. Oh, very clever, he sneered. Wonderful use of your writing skills. What happened to your novel? I was speechless. You've got this comfortable life writing stuff you don't believe in, he continued. I think that's enough, I snapped. I've wasted two years of my life because of you, but after tonight, I'm resigning. Because of you? He asked. How's this my fault? I paused. I couldn't admit I was crazy about him. True, it's not your fault, I said, heading for the door. Forget it. Then I ran away, turned off my mobile phone, and hid in my hotel room. Before the show started, I went down to the projection box to supervise the technical side for the last time. Music and lights, I said to the technician as Jack walked on to a huge applause. Thank you. Now, what do you people know about? Sheep, he began. Everybody laughed. Not much? Well, they fart and burp a lot. A big laugh. But this was not the speech I'd written. Thirty litres of methane a day. Now, that's a pretty stinky animal, and not good for the planet. Not as bad as your cars, but that's another story. They laughed again. For two years, he told people they should only do the things they believe in, he said. But what about himself? I'm a sheep farmer. How can I talk about cars and the environment when the only thing I really understand is an animal that farts and grows 15 kilos of wool every year? Stick to your knitting, my grandma always said. Well, she was right about part of that, I suppose. The audience loved it. Anyway, I need to go back to my sheep. But I can't go alone. You see, there's this person I used to work with. 
He'd wasted two years being afraid to tell her how he felt about her, he said. But now he'd upset her and she wouldn't answer his calls. I could feel the technician looking at me. You see, I've finally got my courage together to visit New Zealand for a holiday. Maybe she could begin the novel she wants to write while I look after my sheep. So, this is my question to you all, and whoever is listening in the projection box at the back. Do you think I should ask her? The silence of 2,000 people holding their breath filled my ears. Then the technician gave a little sob. Say something, he said, pointing at a microphone. I'm begging you. I paused for a moment, then picked it up. Well, I said to Jack and the audience, what do you think your old sheepdog Billy would say? So Catchphrase first appeared in Business Spotlight. And I have to say, at this point, I have a slight confession to make. I don't really like motivational speakers. Now, I've organized uh, a conference or two in my time, and I've always resisted the um, suggestion that I should get a motivational speaker in order to uh, in order to get the audience going. And I think there are a, a number of different reasons for this. Uh, one of them is um, actually jealousy. Uh, I have to confess it's um, uh, sad but true. I think I'd probably like to be a motivational speaker myself. I mean, one of my one of my teenage dreams was to actually be the lead singer in a boy band. Um, and I didn't have the dancing talent. I didn't have the vocal talent. Uh, but I thought I could have made a, a pretty good leader for a, for a boy band. And it's probably something to do with that. I've always seen motivational speakers uh, sort of are like middle-aged boy band leaders even the women ones um and uh so i think probably there's a certain amount of jealousy there i would quite like to have been a motivational speaker myself um but there's a, a couple of other things which i think um come into play here now first of all uh i i don't really understand why people like motivational speakers so much i mean sometimes you might take away a catchphrase or two um, make America great again from a few years ago, uh, follow the science since the start of the corona pandemic. I mean, these are a couple of catchphrases which come to mind. These But generally speaking, these motivational speakers don't really have anything particularly interesting to say. Um, or in my view, it's all sort of fortune cookie kind of philosophy. Great example on LinkedIn very famous motivational speaker. I'm not going to say his name, but he's got something like 2 million followers. And he's got all sorts of people who follow him who who I admire, you know, people I, I, I know, and they think he's great. And they're always posting stuff on, on his, uh, they're always commenting on his posts. And he regularly posts unbelievably obvious statements that collect him hundreds of thousands of likes and comments. Uh, for example, uh, a recent one, the responsibility of leadership 
is to create more leaders. I'm not quite sure about that as a as an idea anyway. I mean, I think the the trouble is we got too many leaders and not enough Indians anyway. Um, or here's another one: uh, while bad leaders make stressful situations worse, good leaders bring out the best in us. I mean, sorry, but that is so obvious. So anyway, I'm not a, a big fan of these motivational speakers, which is not to say that I don't think they do uh, that they're very good at their job. Uh, they are, and I'll come to that in a second. They're really good at doing great presentations, and that's how they manage to get people to uh, lap up this incredibly banal stuff that they spout, um, and, uh, and and think that and pay good money in order to listen to them. I have a theory as to why uh, they're so popular. Now, as you know, one of the great things about Google is that it can provide you with all sorts of lists of of people's most popular holiday destinations, or or people's top ten Richard Pryor movies, or forty songs to take with you on a desert island, all sorts of things like that. Anyway, there are several lists which claim to show people's top fears and the fear of public speaking appears very high up on these lists in fact one of them that i was looking at it was even number two the only thing that people were more afraid of than uh, than public speaking was flying now you might think a fear of death would be higher than a fear of uh, public speaking but no Fear of death was right down at number six. So I suppose what this means is that people would rather die than give a speech at their own funeral, which I suppose kind of makes sense. Um, but it's it's fairly amazing, isn't it? People are more afraid of, of, uh, of public speaking than they are of dying. So my theory is that most of us really admire motivational speakers because we see this person standing up on a stage doing something that we would rather be dead than doing. And so they think, wow, that's pretty amazing. I wouldn't want to be up there, but I'm really impressed that they're able to do it. And uh, yeah, okay, what they're saying isn't really that impressive, but they're saying it in a really impressive way. And so I'm going to clap and cheer and stamp my feet and be quite happy about the amount of money that me or my company has paid in order for me to listen to this bland mixture of fortune telling, pseudoscience and mindless platitudes. In my time as a trainer, I trained an awful lot of people to give presentations. In fact, I even wrote a book about it called Presentation Skills in Seven Simple Steps. And I'm not promoting that or plugging that because it's not available anymore. And it is true that a lot of the people that I was teaching found it enormously stressful. A lot of them were doing it in English rather than in their their own language. And obviously, when you're doing a presentation in a foreign language, the stress levels are even higher. If you share this fear, then uh, an interesting fact that I learned because I did quite a lot of research into the topic is that the audience is far more positive about your presentation than than probably you are. 
So for example, if you take a scale of one to 10, one absolutely disaster, 10 unbelievably brilliant, and you rate your presentation, if you think it went very well, you'll probably give yourself a, a seven or an eight maybe. Uh, if you think it was pretty bad, you might give yourself a, a two or a three. But the audience consistently scores presenters higher than the presenter does themselves. And I found that very interesting. So what I would say to you is take that away. Your audience wants you to succeed. Your audience sees you as far better presenter than perhaps you do yourself. The kind of advice people sometimes give presenters before they go on to give a presentation uh, is sometimes really staggering. One piece of advice that I've often heard is, yeah, just be yourself. And this is so wrong. When you're giving a presentation, you are a performer. You are doing a show for the people who have come to listen to you, and you owe it to them to be a little bit more than yourself. They say that a camera adds kilos onto your, your shape, but what it also does is it takes away your personality. And it's the same, uh, even if there isn't a camera there, you need to add more personality when you are giving a presentation. And so just being yourself really doesn't work. The other crazy piece of advice people often say is, you don't need to be nervous. The audience isn't judging you. Just imagine that they're all sitting there naked in front of you. And I don't know about you, but if I had a whole audience of completely naked people sitting in front of me, unless I was in a nudist colony, I think I would be terrified. So ignore all that advice. Remember, the audience loves you and the audience wants you to succeed. Another tip that people said was very useful in the book was how to get rid of adrenaline. Now, like half an hour before you're giving a presentation, you might be sweating a bit, you might be, your throat might be dry, you might be feeling jittery, you might be thinking, oh, I need a coffee. Don't drink the coffee, it's always a mistake. Conference coffee is always a disaster and you really don't need to add any more stimulants onto your, onto your, into your system. Uh, much better idea. If you're feeling stressed out before a presentation, walk up and down the stairs a couple of times. It's the best way to get rid of that surplus adrenaline and then you will be able to go into the presentation feeling uh, relaxed and with just enough adrenaline to make you perform at the, the top of your game. And my final useful tip for you is a fashion tip. People said my fashion tips for presentations were also very helpful. Uh, and it's a very obvious one, but if possible, always wear a short sleeved cotton t-shirt underneath your shirt or blouse to absorb any excess sweat. And your shirt or your blouse, best if you wear white or black, because um, if you're wearing red or blue, for example, or green, uh, and the sweat comes through your, your short sleeve cotton t-shirt, then it's going to mark your shirt or your blouse and it's going to be obvious to everybody. So remember that short sleeved cotton t-shirt and a white or black shirt or blouse on top is the best combination. 
I was also really interested to learn in my course of my research that this gesture that politicians do, point, smile, thumbs up, is completely artificial. It really is designed to build the relationship between the audience and the presenter. Because as BB says in the story, it's designed to make everybody in the audience feel, oh, the speaker, the politician, the guru up there, they have people here in the audience who they know. And I'm part of this group. I'm part of this group of people who know the, the expert. It makes all members of the audience feel that they are part of the same community. So my advice to you is if you see a politician do that, make sure you don't vote for them because they're total phonies. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Visit my website behindthebottomline.com and leave a review. Tell people what you think of Behind the Bottom Line and this story. And you can do the same on Spotify and Apple if you don't want to go through to the website. Don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast and tell them what you think of it. That way they can belong to this really totally cool, awesome gang as well. And remember, if you want to read each of these season stories on my website, just go to the episode you want to read and you can find there the transcript together with the show notes. And while you're on my website, why not visit my bookshop? Go to the bookshop tab and there you can buy Double Trouble which featured in season five or Peril in Venice, which is a murder mystery. And that is featured in season six. Next week's story is called The Shopping Cart. What does your weekly shopping bill say about you? And more importantly, what does it tell other people about you? And I really hope you'll be back to listen to it. Until then, take care and goodbye. <laughs>